Our scripture this morning is from John 4, a lengthy scripture. I'm glad that it's lengthy. Let it be, let it be lengthy. Um, there's something really special about it being lengthy. So let's, let's hear this scripture from John 4. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more than comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you. 
and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. May you be the sower. May you plant it deep in our hearts. May you also prepare that soil so that we may receive your word, that it may germinate, grow, bear fruit for our lives, for those around us, for the whole world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, My hope this morning is to hear from someone who's pretty well known, but I don't think has been heard clearly for 2,000 years. And by hearing her this morning, my hope is to begin to understand, one, why we have not heard her, and perhaps why we have not heard from other women as well. I'm talking about the famous woman at the well, or the Samaritan woman. We don't even know her name. We refer to her as woman, woman at the well. We just heard her part in the Bible, and it's an astonishing story that we've heard in, in, uh, in full. I think we haven't heard from her fully because it is a dangerous story. This is a disruptive story. And for some, disruption is a major problem. So my hope is that by beginning to hear her well, we will not only think of her in a new light, but also reconsider the ways that we have silenced others, including and especially other women. We can repent and receive those gifts in the church. So what happens? Jesus and his followers are on a journey. Um, They pass through an area called Samaria. They come near a Samaritan city. It's called Sychar, and near that city is a well. And Jesus sends the disciples ahead to get some food while he hangs out at the well. And then along comes a woman, and the woman wants some, uh, needs to fetch some water, and he's at the well, and they strike up a conversation, and it's about midday. Here's where the discrediting of the woman at the well often begins. It's supposed... It's supposed that she is there midday because she's been ostracized by her people for being um, a woman of ill repute, we'll say. She has to come midday, they suppose, because it's the hottest part of the day and no one else would go. And so she can't go with her friends. She can't go with the other women. She has to go by herself. Uh, This is made up. 
There's no example of this ever happening in the ancient Near East. There's no other situation where a woman does this. This is speculation. This is conjecture. We don't actually know if it was hot. Um, I know a little bit about uh, ancient Israel. It turns out they have seasons. And uh, seasons means it's not always hot in the middle of the day. It might just be the middle of the day. There also may be a really interesting reason why she's going to the well midday. To get water. Why is she there? Because she needed water in the middle of the day. And she went to go get water. We don't have any other evidence for another alternative. But not only that, um, there's something deeper going on. Bible Interpretation 101 says that if you have gaps in a story, don't try to fill those in with information that you make up. Try to find out what the story is telling you. And one of the most interesting things that um, is like a a signal or a clue right at the beginning, here, for instance, uh, we have to ask the question, well, why does John even mention the midday? Why is that an even important fact? Well, The writer of the Gospel of John loves light and dark. He loves day and night. And he talks about it all throughout his Gospel. And some of you who were here last week, you remember the conversation with Nicodemus. When does Nicodemus come and visit Jesus? At night, exactly. And now she is coming at the brightest, lightest time of the day. The contrast could not be more distinct. Nicodemus is a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Nicodemus is named. She is not named. Nicodemus is like a very prominent uh, teacher of teachers, teacher of the Jews. She is a Samaritan who's just getting water from a well. And yet, Nicodemus is the one who's in the dark, and she turns out to be the one who's in the light of day. She gets it. He doesn't. This is the great reversal that the Gospel of John is telling us. And if we miss it, and we will miss it if we mischaracterize her. Not for nothing, this happens to be the longest conversation in the Gospel of John that Jesus has with anybody. The other important thing to pick up on here is the location of where they're having the conversation. It's a well. And in particular, it's Jacob's well. Jacob met his wife at a well. It was where sheep are gathered together. Wells are very, very significant in the Bible. And we'll find out what that significance entails in a little bit. All right. So they're meeting, and they're just meeting as people. There's one person with her own history. There's Jesus with his own history. And they're going to have a conversation. It's not an easy conversation. It takes some twists and turns. One of the things to notice is that this is not a quiet and submissive woman. Um, she has some very tough questions for Jesus. But in contrast to Nicodemus, she tracks with him the whole way. Nicodemus just gets lost. And halfway through that conversation, Nicodemus goes out of it and just becomes a monologue of Jesus about why he's here. The monologue is really significant, but Nicodemus is gone from the conversation, not here. She tracks with him the entire conversation. Jesus asked for water. She's surprised that he would ask for water because Jews and Samaritans have a long history of keeping separate. Some animosity there. 
Jesus starts talking about water as a metaphor, living water, life-giving spirit, and she gets confused. Again, like Nicodemus, but unlike Nicodemus, um, she eventually gets it. The conversation turns from water to husbands, which is, I know is a weird turn, but I think it makes sense. Um, we find out that she's had five husbands and that she's now living with a sixth man who is not her husband. But her reply is that she has no husband. Here, here's the point where she gets um, mainly mischaracterized. And I love what Marianne Thompson says in her commentary on John. She says, um, Jesus calls attention to her problematic situation, but he does not condemn her. Subsequently, commentators and preachers have hastened to fill the void. <laughs> that about sums it up. It is a problematic situation for her to have five husbands. Absolutely. But there are several reasons why this could be the case. The husbands really may have all died. And in that case, this would be a tragic, tragic circumstance. Uh, it may be that they have divorced her for any number of reasons, probably not very fair. It is highly unlikely that she divorced them. And if it was a prostitute, it was highly unlikely that she could be married this many times. Probably impossible to be married this many times and to be a prostitute. In order to get married back then, it wasn't for love. It wasn't for romance. It was a social contract. And you needed a lot of money to get married. It's called a dowry. In order to get married five times, there had to be some pile of money somewhere that was enabling this situation to go on. But we don't know. As far as her living with uh, this guy who's not her husband, um, there could have been any number of reasons for that. Back then, it was against the law to be married to a Roman soldier, to be officially married. So maybe she was with a Roman soldier and they just couldn't uh, officially tie the knot. Maybe it was a slave. You couldn't be formally married to a slave either. Uh, not unlike some laws in this country not that long ago where you were not allowed to be married to somebody with a different ethnic heritage. Could have been that. Again, we don't know. We don't know about Samaritan customs. We know less about Samaritan customs than we do Jewish customs or Roman customs. So we haven't the foggiest idea of why she's been married five times. But here's the crucial thing. John tells us all that we need to know. Apparently, John doesn't think it's all that significant for us to know her whole backstory. Apparently, John seems to think that it's none of our business why she's had five husbands and why she's married to this guy. Now, it'd be different if Jesus said, you've been married a bunch, you're living with a guy, you're living in sin, go and sin no more. Interestingly, he never mentions sin. He never condemns her. Well, he's, he's just being merciful. He's just being gracious to her. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's calling out her sin without shaming her. Jesus is very good at calling out sin. He will do it a few chapters later with somebody else. He will say, you have sinned. You are a sinner. Don't do this sin. He, he, if he wants to do that, he will do it. Here, he does not. Again, we have to read the Bible for the way the Bible is speaking to us, for what it says, not what we would like it to think. 
Okay, so then what might be going on here? What is the point of this conversation if it is not to show grace to a horrible, rotten sinner? If we listen to them, they tell us. The dialogue continues, and the woman, um, she really gets right to the heart of the whole matter, of the whole reason this is taking a place. When Jesus reveals what he knows about her life, she doesn't hang her head in shame, but instead she replies with a, a very astute theological question. Okay, big shot. We worship here, Mount Gerizim. You guys worship in Jerusalem. Who is right? She gets right to the heart of centuries of conflict between Samaritans and Jews. 200 years ago, it was a Jewish king who destroyed the Samaritan temple. Lots of animosity. You all, uh, so that's the heart of the matter. It's the reason Jesus doesn't travel through Samaria in the first place. It's the reason she was uncomfortable giving him a drink in the first place. It's even the reason Jesus brought up the husbands. She is a picture of her people. Just as their temple was destroyed, so her husbands did not last. They were finite. The Samaritan people are threatened by the Romans and by the Jews. Who will care for them? Who will be like Jacob who came to the well and gathered all the sheep together and wept before his bride and pledged everything he had? Who will be somebody like that? For the first time in John's gospel, Jesus will identify himself in the clearest way he possibly can. He replies to her, I am. The translation says, I am he, but there's only two Greek words there, and it's just I am. And he'll say this throughout the gospel of John, and it's the most significant thing that he says, and he says it first to her, to a Samaritan woman, I am. What's it a reference to? It's a reference to the name of God, Yahweh. This is the most significant name that God has. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is not just um, one of the, he's not just on par with one of the ancestors. He's the God of the ancestors. This is the God who brought the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. This is the God who brought them into the promised land, and this is the God who brought them out of exile. He says, I am that God. Unlike Nicodemus, it dawns on her. She realizes what's going on. The implications of this revelation cascade into her life, and she thinks, oh my goodness, I have to just tell everybody. This is so great. And she goes and she tells a whole, the whole city, Sychar, she tells everybody there, and here's something astonishing. They believe her. They believe her. Why would they believe her if she was discredited? Why would they believe her if she was some woman of ill repute or whatever it is? They believe her, and 2,000 years of Christian tradition has not believed her. This may be the biggest reason why her story has been misinterpreted. For some, there might be an intention to discredit her because not only was she a major evangelist, she was also a forerunner to the disciples, a forerunner to the disciples. So while she leaves, while she's going and, and spreading the news about Jesus, Jesus is having this conversation with the disciples, and he's saying, look, you guys are about to come into a huge harvest. You didn't plant this. Other people did. The irony is she's planting it at that moment, right before they receive the harvest. She's the planter. 
She's the one going and doing that. She's a forerunner. Who else is a forerunner? John the Baptist. She's like the Samaritan equivalent of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was considered the greatest of the prophets. For some, that kind of a status is extremely dangerous. It's a threat. But if she can be discredited, then hopefully women won't want to follow in her footsteps. Hopefully women won't look up to her. Hopefully women won't try to do what she does in this passage. But imagine if we had heard her story in the beginning and we had preserved it. Since Tertullian. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, one of the great architects of the Trinitarian faith, even Tertullian uh, considered her a prostitute and a whore. Consider if that had gone a different way. Maybe theological reflection and evangelism would have been dominated by women. Perhaps there would have been an active order modeled after her. Women intent on erasing ethnic division by preaching the good news of the gospel. I would like to nominate one candidate for this new order of the woman at the well. Her name is Lena Schofner Matheson. Uh, I've talked about her a couple times over the years. Um, She's relatively unknown, um, but she's known pretty well in our tradition. She was a traveling preacher in the 1890s. That was at the beginning, very beginning of our movement. She traveled down to Alabama to preach the gospel, to preach these tent meetings. And at these tent meetings, what they would do is they, they'd have a preacher up front, and then sitting, sitting much like this would be everybody listening, but there would be a rope that goes down the middle. And the rope would separate whites from the blacks. So uh, you could not have an integrated meeting. And so they compromised by putting a rope down the middle. She's preaching on Galatians. She's preaching about Christ breaking down the dividing wall where there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. And while she's preaching, someone is so inspired by this that they take down the rope that's between them and the two groups merge and come together, hug and embrace and worship God together. This was an extremely dangerous act. The clan got wind of this, and they literally blew up the tent and attacked with dynamite. Uh, one preacher had to dress in drag to escape. Uh, he's a patron saint of something. I don't know what, but something. Um, another man had to literally stand all night in a river so that the dogs couldn't find him. Just stand there all night to be safe, and they couldn't detect his scent. I'd like to nominate her as someone who's part of this new order. It's still dangerous. It's still dangerous to empower half of our species because you always are more powerful if, if you can limit, if you can, uh, if you can consolidate power. This is still a dangerous thing to do. We still find the silencing of women all the time. Like Nicodemus, we have too long been in the dark. We have too long been confused, and we have too long, crucially, to not only miss the witness of women, but to witness Jesus' own message. 
We usually come to Jesus and we come to church assuming we need to be correct. Instead, we need to come to the well at midday, in the light of day, in the light of the gospel. We need to come seeking to find out who Jesus actually is. And in doing so, begin to understand who we actually are. As Paul says, we are neither Jew nor Samaritan. We are neither American or alien. We are neither male or female. These things don't have the status that excludes one and welcomes another. Instead, we are all equal recipients of God's life-giving spirit. And there's no one better to remind us of this and guide us in this than the woman that we meet today, the woman at the well. And so I'm very grateful for her witness. Amen. Lord, we thank you for uh, the witness that we have heard today. And I do ask that um, we will follow in this great example and, and that you will make us a blessing to those around us, <coughs> witnesses of the one who is, who was, and is to come. In his name we pray. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.